podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. A Scottish football podcast that isn't obsessed with just two teams. Niche nonsense. Or surprisingly brilliant. You decide. The Terrace Scottish Football Podcast. The cult Scottish football podcast now adapted into a hit TV show. Search the Terrace Scottish Football Podcast on your chosen podcast player now. Welcome to the Man City Show. It's Nigel Roth, band back in the chair. And this week, my guest joined City when he was just 12 years of age and left when he was 27. That's 15 years at our great club. He saw relegations, promotions, a fair share of injuries, and he also had the honour of wearing the captain's armband. A very warm welcome this week to Richard Edgehill. Hi, Nigel. Thanks for inviting me onto the show. Looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to it all day. Give me something different to do. Fantastic. What would you be doing if you weren't talking to me right now, then, do you reckon? Uh, probably sat in the garden with a glass of wine. <laughs> well, hopefully we won't keep you too long and we'll uh, go back to the glass of wine in a second. Listen, I said you, you joined City as a 12-year-old. I think they were a school of excellence in those days, weren't they? And, and yes. what, what, what kind of led you into that? Obviously, a, a good schoolboy footballer, I guess. But what got you into the City School of Excellence in the first place at the ripe old age of 12? I think it was, I was playing for a team called um, Royton Town, Royton All-Stars, and, and they changed the name to Slumberland Rangers. We were sponsored by the company in Royton. And uh, we had quite a decent team, and we played against a lot of other local teams and got into some finals, and I was spotted by, um, at the time, the chief, the chief scout, Terry Farrell, mm. um, inviting me down to, to have a trial at, at Platway, and I went down with my dad, and... Um, Played a few games over a course of like two or three days, and then they invited me, kept inviting me back, and then I ended up training on a Thursday night at Platt Lane with with Colin Bell, yeah. um, and that's how it sort of came about. And you, you obviously you're born in the area as well. Were you, were you a City fan as a boy as well? Was this like a, a dream come true, sort of playing with Colin Bell, or, or did you support another side in the region? I was, I was, I was born in Oldham, so I, I went to I went to watch one game. Um, went, went to watch Oldham play one game and dad took me down this was around about the time I sort of took an interest in playing football and we went to watch one game and I, we didn't, never went back after that and then we started watching the City games um, and I was I, I was a ball boy for the, for the 5-1 derby game and um, it just sort of spiralled from there really it was it was a we kept in touch with my mum and dad uh, they looked after me when I came down for training. I used to catch two buses from from home or from school sometimes into Piccadilly and then along Winslow Road off at Platfields Park and then I'd run down to to Platt Lane. So it just sort so, of spiralled from there. So just help us understand, just just sort of to recount, there is is a lad born in born in Oldham, uh, went to watch City, was a ball boy, and suddenly you're training with Colin Bell. I mean that that's that's mad, isn't it? Did you appreciate it at the time, or were you just no, football mad no. and it was just like, well, yeah, whatever? No, Colin used to come down. He didn't take us all all the time to train. He'd come down occasionally on the Thursdays and he'd do different skills with, with certain players. And it got to the point where I, at that time, I didn't really know who he was, which sounds daft now. <laughs> um, because I work with him on match days now for the, for, for the club, so I see him quite a lot. And sure. at the time, I just... I knew he was a former player, but I didn't know how big he actually was. So it was, it, for me, at the time, it was a little bit 
I wasn't too bothered. I just wanted to play and train and get and learn new things. Uh, and as a 12-year-old, who were the other lads who we might know their names, the lads who made it, even if it wasn't at City, maybe went on to other clubs um, and made it? Any, anybody you would remember who's maybe made a name for themselves? On that Thursday night, it was, Scott, it was Scott Thomas. Scott Thomas, I think, he, I'm not sure if he, how many appearances he's made in the first team. Ray Ingram played left oh, yes. back. Yeah. Um, I think he went on to play for Macclesfield and a few other teams. And that was really it in my great Eddie Mike. He was yeah. a year above me, a year older than me. And sure. that was really it, really. The rest of the lads didn't really make it as professionals. Uh, oh, and just talk us through that progression then. So as a 12-year-old, I, I, I do know for, from the book and so on that, that you know you did obviously clean boots and clean cars and do the laundry, which we'll come on to in a second. But that, that's not as a 12-year-old, is it? They're not quite got you doing that at that age. What, just talk no, us through a little bit about the, the progression then from that 12-year-old to, to getting into that position where you're kind of part of the club and, and you're getting yourself involved. So from 12, from 12 years old, you basically sign schoolboy forms so you can... You can still you go back to your, your clubs that you play for at the weekend, still play for them. But it was like a two-year contract that you signed. So it was, took, took you to the age of 14. And at 14, they decided whether they were going to keep you on or not. And it, they'd give you another two years to take it from 14 to 16. And it's obviously when I was leaving school. So all that time between 12 and 16, it was all I wanted to do then was, was make it and try and, and get a contract with the club which at the time was a YTS apprenticeship. And um, it, it sort of went quite well for me during those four years. And um, when I left school, I uh, signed YTS apprenticeship forms. And um, it all just sort of went from there. That's when the job started, doing the cleaning, cleaning the floor, the toilets, cleaning Peter Reed's car out, <laughs> going around to the bookies. I was going to ask you, so, it, so we, I heard this story about part of the deal was, you know, you hear about the lads cleaning the boots, of course, which is kind of happens, used to, don't think it happens anymore, does it, with, with the youngsters anymore, no. of course, but uh, but it did then, and also the cleaning the car, so I'm, I'm keen to know who, who had the best car at that time, do you remember anybody had a really smart car, you thought, oh, that's a We were sponsored by Peugeot at the time, mm. um, Peugeot was one of our sponsors, so the manager had like a big, I think it was a 408 or 405, I can't remember, but it was a big car. Yeah. And they'd, we'd have to wash the players' cars. So a lot of the players had sponsored Peugeot cars. Sure. Um, who who was the messiest? Who, who was the messy? Who had the dirtiest? Well, I only ever cleaned the managers. Cleaned the managers okay. and Sam Ellis, who was Peter Reed's assistant at that time. Um, but they'd, they'd send us round to the bookies to pick up the winnings and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, just round the corner from the ground where the rolling pin was, the, the sandwich yeah. shop. And um, to collect the winnings. And it would be like, what? what? <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. <laughs> Times have changed, eh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, the, the academy players nowadays don't do jobs as such. I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't get away with it nowadays. What we used to do, we'd, we'd have we'd have to clean toilets with like a scrubbing brush, and you'd be on your hands and knees around the back of the toilet, scrubbing the toilets and collecting dirty kit, and it's it's ridiculous. But it, it sort of it, it was character building for us because it. it you had to do it right because Tony Buck, if you didn't do it right, he'd make you do it again. So Tony would, Skip would come around and check the loose one, would he? Yeah, so he'd check, check everything. The... He'd go, he'd check the top of the door frames for dust. He'd check you'd done everything. And if you hadn't done, if we hadn't done it, he'd make us get it all out and do it all again. And, uh, and who were the, it was who, a stickler. 
who are the stars then, Richard? Who I'm just just sort of trying to get the people listening today to the podcast thinking about just getting our sort of chronology right in terms of you were there as as a sort of a, on schoolboy forms. You've just signed your first contract as a YTS. Who were kind of the stars in the first team then? Who were who were playing? Who were around the club when so you the, started? So the big names then would have been Niall Quinn. Um, so you're talking Niall Quinn, Ian Brightwell, Paul Lake was was training at that time. Although he had like quite a, a bad injury, um, Neil Redmond, um, Mark Brennan. I'm just trying to think. Peter Reid was playing. Steve McMahon was there. Sure, um, I've got a picture in my mind of, of that team then. So uh, yeah, some some, some big Mike players. Mike Sheeran who... played up front with Nal Quinn. Of course. Uh, and, so and, there's, and... quite, there's quite a lot. And when did you kind of first get noticed? Because I know you, you made your debut against Wimbledon when you, you, I think you were just 18, weren't you, when you made your debut? Yeah. So, so, so just sort of getting to that point, sort of playing reserves games, was that like the next thing to happen? And you, any highlights of, of, of that career? And, and, and how do you yeah. think you got spotted? Just talk us through that sort of transition again from reserve team football to actually get that slot and making your debut at Wimbledon. Well, we, we at, the t- at that time, we, we played reserve games with the Pontins Reserve League. So you was playing against men, basically. So I was 17, 16, 17, playing in the reserve games and the A and B team games, which was a Saturday morning. But the reserve games were played against, um, I remember playing Everton away and Tony Cotty played um, up front and they had uh, Pat Van Den Hal played. And they're all sort of coming back from injury, these these first team players who played for Everton. So it was it was... Huge in that sense because we were playing against seasoned professionals who played for the countries and things like that. And for me, that helped me a lot. Probably helped me a lot at that time. And it does the academy players now because there's no reserve games anymore. You don't play against men. You play against other players your age. And you don't really get that experience. And I remember playing Tony Cotty. We played Liverpool. John Barnes played. Ian Rush played. We played them at Main Road. Jamie Redknapp played in that game. Steve McManaman, Stephen Gerrard, play, players like that who you, you you had to be on your game to play against those sorts of players because they were they were top players. And, and that, that must have been life. a hell of a step up. Must have been a hell of a step up, Richard, going from you know playing the sort of football you were playing to be playing sort of that Pontins League, Reserve League. That, that what were the sort of challenges you had as a youngster? Adapting to that sort of those those hard nosed professionals, as you say, coming back from injury, playing against this young lad, wet behind the ears. Forgive me, but uh, you know you know what I'm saying. Yeah, how, yeah. how did you? What, what, what well, was it a lot like? of it? A lot of it at that time, I think, was to go out and play against those. So Graham Sharp played with Tony Cotty up front, and I remember I played centre half against those two players <laughs> in the reserve league, and it, it was Graham Sharp and Tony Cotty, and they both been out injured, or one had been suspended. I can't remember exactly, but. To play against those sorts of players, and you played well against them, and give you a massive lift, and then you get you get praised off your coaches who, who tell you how well you've done and tell you how, the things you've done wrong also. But for me, it was that that was it was a massive benefit playing against players like that because you learned so much. You learned mm-hmm. uh, how players make runs and forward players and how our wingers play and what sort of things they do, and you learn you learn that. Every every reserve game, every reserve game was an hard game because you were playing against players who played in the first team for the clubs. So it wasn't an easy time, but it was more trying to get the mental side of it and thinking about the mental side of it. Like these players have played for the countries and they're trying to get into your head by saying things to you. 
and that was for me was one of the biggest things because physically I, I could run all day. I, I was able to run and I had a good engine. I was quick. I could run all the, the first team players: Ian Brightwell and Paul Lake and, and Neil Redman used to call me Saeed Oita because I could just run and run. Um, but it was it was more the mental side of it. So, so what were they saying? You know, what, repeatable on the podcast. So, how would they wind you up? So, these seasoned professionals saw this young lad at centre back. So, what what were the tricks of the trade that they were trying that maybe you haven't seen playing sort of more junior football against less seasoned professionals? What were, what were the tricks of the trade that they tried? Just saying silly things. I remember playing against Ian Wright in my first season at Highbury. My was my job was to was to be on the post. So Tony Corton was in that, and TC shouting at me to. to be alive and be alert. And as I turn around to look at TC, Ian Wright stood next to him, fighting with Tony, pushing and shoving him. And he turned around and said to me, what the F are you looking at? <laughs> and I just turned straight around. and thought, oh my God, that's Ian Wright. <laughs> I can't say anything back. And then I remember the same season, I played centre-half against him at Main Road and it was probably one of my best games I played. And he didn't have a kick of the ball, and he was the same thing. Then he kept saying to me, "Well, you go away, go away," and tell him, but swearing at me, mm-hmm. telling me to disappear. And, and <laughs> it was just things like that where they constantly be on your case and um, saying things and hitting you and punching you and pinching you and things like that. <laughs> Bring us up to date then in terms of the debut, then Richard. So when did when did you find out, or how did it come about? Was it? Do you get a bit of notice, or was it kind of? Get your boots, you're playing. It was what, yeah, it was a little bit like that. Just you pulled me to one side after the training session, just said you're going to be starting on Monday. And it was, that was on the probably, I think we, we trained on the Saturday morning. Um, and that we travelled down on the, on the Sunday. And then I, he told me on the Saturday after the training session on the Saturday, but it was. It was something, I think, I'd, not bit, like being big headed thinking I was going to play, but I, I, I was getting more and more involved with the first team. So I, I trained with the youth team, and then for, we had 11 v 11 game. They called me over to, to play in this 11 v 11. And then Peter Reid put me in at right back and tried me at centre half, and then put me back at, at right back. And I just, he just, in the games that we practiced at Port Lane, he just tried different things. But he, he gave me a lot of encouragement to. to feel comfortable about playing and being with the rest of the, the, the older lads who, who, are bit, who are seasoned professionals. So I think I got the confidence from that, that, that I knew I, if, I, if I was given the chance to play, I could, I could do a good job. And Luckily, was this an injury? To, it was an injury to another player, or suspension, or somebody dropped think, to make way for you? Do, you? do you remember? I can't remember exactly. I think it was um, just a change of formation because that's when Brian Orton had come in. And we'd signed Alan Kernahan from uh, Middlesbrough, was it? Signing from, mm. um, and it was, it was it was just a little bit of a change because he came in as centre centre half, uh, played alongside Keith Curl, and and we had Terry Field at left back, and I was putting at right back. So it was just a bit of a mix around. I can't remember if anyone was dropped or they got injured. Mm. I think I'm not sure. I'm not 100 percent sure. I and I can't remember where Kernigan came from. I do remember him scoring from about forty yards, though. I think what were you playing in that game when he when he cracked in from about forty yards? Which one? Kernigan. I can't remember who we were playing now. Even I'm just, just yeah, in my, I can't back in yeah, my mind. I can't, it was, it was, it was I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. we probably should should remember. I, I, I'm I'm trying to think. I, I, I'm guessing I, would, would like Fashionu and Vinnie Jones be playing in that yeah, game against yeah. you as well? Yeah, yeah, really? that was. Um, I remember coming out of the dressing room and Tony Buck, who was the first team coach at the time, was 
trying to give me a lot of encouragement, which he used to do quite a lot. He used to talk to the defenders and the fullbacks in particular because he was obviously a fullback. Yeah. And he was he was saying just give as good as you get, basically. And as I walked out into the into the corridor outside the dressing room, Vinnie Jones was pretending to punch the wall. Or <laughs> he was like shadow boxing against the wall. And then John Fashion knew because he was he was a big guy, six foot four, he had his foot on the wall, stretching his hamstring, but his foot was above his head. And he was doing like a, a he did jujitsu or something like that, and he was doing a, one of those stretches where he stretched his foot was basically touching the ceiling in the corridor. And I thought, I looked and thought, this is going to be a lot harder than what I imagined. <laughs> but you did all right. You did all right. Yeah, the game, the game went, the game went well, and I enjoyed it. It was, it was good to be in that sort of type of situation and thrown in at the deep end, and I think that that helped a lot. And, you know, I think it's uh, one of my questions, actually, because you, you played in different positions, didn't you? Because you've already talked, even in your short career up until this point, are you centre-back or are you full-back? They're two very different positions, of course, and they require yeah, they different skills and so on. So I'm, I'm fascinated to know, uh, you know, your natural, where you see your natural position, where you prefer to play, the challenges of both of those positions. Just help us understand a bit about that, Richard. Well, I started off... When I was obviously 12, when I first started, I went as a, as a, I was a centre midfielder for my, my team that I played with on a Saturday. And uh, when I went to the trial games, they put me back to centre half because I could jump. I was quick and I could add a great leap. I could really jump and head the ball. And um, all the way through my time at, at City, and I was always there was always that, that option where oh, Edgy could play there or if we needed him. And there was a couple of games where I was put in at centre-half um, to play centre-half because we had through injuries and suspensions and stuff like that. Primarily, when they moved me back to centre-half, they then moved me to right-back and they were juggling around with where, where he's in the best position. So in the A and B team games, I played centre-half. I played centre-half <laughs> with um, Glenn Pardo at left-back and Tony Buck at right-back and Bed Marine. And it was like the craziest things ever that it was like full on battle. The people were getting punched and kicked and Glenn Pardo was playing last back and Tony Buck's playing right back and I'm playing centre half with these two like legendary fullbacks. And it was one of those it just sort of mixed me between the two. It wasn't it wasn't set in stone I was gonna play centre half going through the youth team. But in the youth cup, FA youth cup I played centre half mainly. And then it was only when Peter Reed put me into the first team training scene that they sort of moved me out to right back uh, which I enjoyed because I could, like I said I was quick I could overlap I could I could defend and with Tony Buck as, as your coach you, you were taught I was taught specifically just to defend it was never any thought of or talk of uh, getting forward and scoring goals it was always defend you're a defender first and foremost so you just do that that job as best as you can and uh, everything else will fall into place. So that's how I sort of ended up at, at fullback. And it was, um, it's some, it's a time in my life that I look back and think, I really enjoyed that, that time from bit 16 up to when I made my debut at 18, because it all just happened so fast and quick. Uh, I only did a year as a YTS, and then I signed professional at 17. Um, and then I made my debut at 18. So it was, it was moving fast and, and, I was enjoying it at the time. And, and it was a fascinating time at the club as well, of course, and as a supporter. 
uh, we went through some interesting times and, and you know, it, I've, I've had a great time these last few weeks on the show with, with no actual football, no live football to talk about. I had the opportunity to talk about the fantastic, the, you know, the 60s. I've had Tommy Booth on the show who, you know, nobody's had more honours than him. You think of the late yeah. 60s and the early 70s and Joe Corrigan, who kind of played in that team. I've then had Gary Owen on and then we've had kind of Jill, Jim Melrose and Jim Whitley and, and, and now yourself. So we're kind of going through the different generations. And of course, you enjoyed, if you pardon the expression, 15 years of real ups and downs to the club as well. I mean, from, from relegations to promotions, literally all the way down and all the way up again. I mean, you, you, you were involved at a really fascinating time. And we can talk about the last few years where it's been just wall-to-wall trophies, which has just been like unbelievable. Um, just help us understand kind of what it was like around the club during those relegations, I suppose, in, in particular, because you, you were involved then, you were playing then. What, what was that like? It was it was really hard because it was a, a time of not knowing what's going to happen, whether we were still going to be at the club, whether somebody was going to come in and sell sell you as a player, or what. What it was just an up in the air sort of thing. It's like people juggling with your career and what's what's going to happen next. And a lot of players back then were were seeking to find out what was going to happen with them. And a lot of, you get a lot. I mean, football is a selfish sport. You get a lot of individuals that are thrown together and you're not always going to get on and you get some that are more selfish than others that will go and knock on the manager's door and say what's happening I want a new contract I should be playing and then you get the ones who don't really say anything just get on with it and I was that in that sort of second category where I didn't go and knock on the manager's door I didn't shout and scream I didn't demand to play I just got on with my job and worked hard and I realised that working hard would get me into the team and we didn't have 11 players who went out every Saturday and, and thought that, that way. We had some who were just only there for the money, some who thought they were better than what they were. And it, it, it was really, really difficult time. And we ended up with 54 players in dressing rooms at Platt Lane and it was too many. And managers were getting changed, uncertainty over the, the players they'd signed. And there was another manager who'd had another 10 players and we ended up with 54 professional footballers at the club which was obscene. You had people who were signed for a lot of money who were getting paid a lot of money who didn't play. And they were just staying and hanging around to collect the money until... But I think... I, I, when jo- I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I, was, I, was, I would completely understand if you don't know, want to answer this question, but you, are you prepared to name names to, today of the, of the sort of players who you're referring to here that, that, that maybe came in on big wages and didn't quite put the effort in that the local lad Richard Edgehill would, would, would have put in? We had, we had a few. We had, I mean, we had some peculiar signings. We signed Jerry Creamy from, I think we swapped him with Paul Walsh to Portsmouth. Which was a, a strange one because Paul Walsh at the time, Walsh was doing really well for us, and it, Jerry came in and I think he, he must have thought he won the lottery, and I think he enjoyed going out more than training, and that's just the way it was. Those sort of people we had, I think our scouting system at that time couldn't have been very good because the players we were looking at weren't the sort of players that we needed to get us out of a fight, and that's just the way it was. I always started to get involved, and and. That's just the way things were. I always ask around for, for, for questions from, from, from on social media and from the, the rest of the team on, on the Man City show, and I've had a, a number of questions uh, this week, and, and one, Nick Goldstone's always great at, at coming up with some good questions, and, and linked to what we're talking about now, 
he says that you know referring to your time at the club you know a period of great decline between 94 and 99 and and the question is quite quite straightforward you know what do you think went wrong was it poor managers is was it the upheaval in the boardroom disquiet in the dressing room i mean maybe it's all of those but can you kind of try and pinpoint any particular reason and time or you know that, that really can you pinpoint what went wrong? What was it, in your view, Richard, that, that, that meant we had such a decline? It's difficult to, to sort of put your finger on it because there was a lot of things happening. There was, a, there was talks over who's going to be the chairman, the managers were changing, the boardroom at the time was... I didn't know too much about who was on the board, the board members, or who was in charge, who was running things, but it, it was a difficult, uncertain time. And... To say it was just one thing that caused that, I think it's a lot of things. I think it was a lot of uncertainty, wrong the wrong players for me that were put together to try and build something. They were wrong. They weren't. They weren't right for each other, mm. and that made it all the more difficult. Because if you've got somebody willing to run through a brick wall for the, the club and somebody who's not, then you're going to struggle. And that's what we had. We had players who were willing to to bleed for the club and get themselves hurt, and ones who when it came down to a tackle, would hang, hang on the leg in and sort of pull it back out again. And that didn't help. And you had, you had players who would, didn't give any effort at all. And it, it showed on the pitch every week. And it, that the frustration of that, of seeing that, people not pulling weight, made it even more. And that's what made it a little bit, um, I wouldn't say spicy in the dressing room, because it was like, right, we've lost and people are shouting in the dressing room, but nobody's really dealing with the problems. People are just having a go at each other and shouting and, and not dealing with the problems, and that's worked for me. Where a lot of the, the problems with the team at the time lie, lie with, because... I, I mean, it's you, you talk about the players. I mean, you went, you, interestingly, you were at a, a time also when at the club where, where the boardroom was in, in disarray as well. I, th- I think I'm right in saying you saw the end of Swales through Lee and into Bernstein. And did yeah. the madness there uh, at that level, did you think that, and this is a question from, from Miles Weather, incidentally, another of, of, of our regular podcast uh, contributors. His question is, did the madness at that level ever impact the players? Do you think you felt that? I think we did because every every time we, we came out of Main Road after having food after training, there'd be like a circus of, of reporters and um, who do you think is going to take, and questions, who do you think is going to be the new chairman for Francis Lee's coming in, this, and you heard lot, lots of different conflicting stories and it was difficult to concentrate on playing when you don't know who the next chairman's going to be, which manager is going to bring in, and is he going to get rid of you because you, you don't see the way they play. And I think that's what happened a lot. Managers were brought in. Steve Coppel came in. I think he was there for 30-something days. He had 36 days he was in charge. Yeah. And I, yeah. I only met him twice at that time. Unluckily for me, I was out with a knee injury. I had an operation on my knee. And I met him twice in that, third, in that, in that period. So it was, it was strange. It was just a strange place to be. And uh, people were coming and going. Players who, who would never in a million years be associated with Manchester City were getting named as the, the, maybe coming in replacing Ian Brightwell or somebody like that. Who, who you think what well, they're, they're not better than Ian Brightwell? So why are they, why are they bringing them in? And that's just the way it was. It was just like a circus, basically. I call it sure. a circus. 
No, I think you're right. I, on a slightly more positive note, I mean, you did show huge promise as a young player. You were recognised by England. I think you got an England B cap. I think you played, what, three or four times for England under-21s. I think that was under Terry Venables in kind of the mid-90s. Um, did you ever have offers from more successful clubs while at City? I wouldn't say I had offers, but uh, because at that time I never had an agent. Um, and there was some talking with newspapers about Arsenal and Blackburn offering £2 million from it at that time when I, when I broke into the first team. But I, I was never spoke to about... I was told it wasn't it wasn't true. That's what I was told by somebody high up at the club. Um, but all I wanted to do at that time, something like that wouldn't have interested me. I just wanted to get past playing 50 games for the club and playing more games and be more accomplished at what I do. And that's all I really concentrated on. And that's what got me into the England setup with Terry Venables, who was brilliant. And I was playing with like Saul Campbell, Jamie Redknapp, Ray Parler, Robbie Fowler, some great players. He went on to be great players. And I remember it was, we played Leeds away, and then the atmosphere was electric. And it was, I always I enjoyed playing at Leeds. And that's when I got I injured my knee. Yeah. And um, it was, I think it was about two or three weeks after. I can't remember it exactly, but I think it was a time after a week or so after that they were going to announce the Euro '96 squad, and I had a letter saying that um, I would be in the the twenty, I think it was twenty-three man squad or something like that, and then I did the cruciate ligament and leads, so I was um, I never went, and Gary never went instead. It's a shame. <laughs> yeah. I, you, you, you said to me that, that you didn't have an agent, and I'm just sitting here reflecting. Obviously, today that just would never happen. It was was there a reason why you didn't have an agent? Was that just because you were just wanted to play football, and, and not everybody had an agent? What was that the, the fashion at the time? Was was there a reason why you didn't have one? Yeah, I think a lot of young players at the time didn't have agents, and it was a case of I'd signed a, a, an apprenticeship, and I was getting paid. Uh, £29.50 my first year and I was getting 30 I think it was £32 for the second year after the first year Peter Reid offered me a, a new contract and I signed a new contract for £350 a week so to me that from going from £29.50 to £300 a week I, I was I loved it it was brilliant and I, I wasn't thinking about oh could I get more or am I, am I getting what I'm worth because you didn't think like that at the time you, it was more focused on being a professional footballer and training and being the best player you could be. So it wasn't about the money for me at that time. It was more about playing. Um, so whatever I was offered, that's what I took. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct... Something that's less Mr. Bean and more Steve McQueen. Check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. 
cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. During your time at City, um, I, I want to talk about two particular games and one particular penalty, and you know what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, yeah. the, obviously, the, the playoff final, and, and then the following season, of course, that Blackburn game as well, which were two just incredible. I talked to Nicky Weaver last week, actually, about about these two games, and you, you were obviously involved there as well. But before I do that, I just want to talk about the captaincy as well, because you, you wore the captain's armband a few times as well. How, how did that come about, and what was your feeling being handed 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 that honour? It was it was when Joel came in. And um, Joe really sorted the, the, the I'd said it once at the club, I'd say he sorted the squad out. He got rid of the people he didn't want in in that squad, people who weren't going to work hard and run and, and train to the best of their ability. And he sorted that squad out at that time. And it was more, I think it was more because I was, I got, I got, I got on well with him, but it, it, the players, the other players used to call, call him dad. He used to say he's my dad. Um, <laughs> which was quite a running job. Um, but it was more, he knew, he knew me, he he lived sort of 10, 15 minutes from where I lived when I lived in Oldham. Um, and he knew the background about me and, and what I was like as a person. I think that sort of, and the fact that I'd been there, one of the long, longest serving players, I think they thought I would have some sort of influence over everyone else. And I think that's why he did it. The other players would say that is because he was my dad, and <laughs> <laughs> and there was no one else. But that's just how it sort of came about. And what were your feelings when he said, "Here you go, Richard. Wear that on your on your left arm." And how, and how, did, you, how did you do it? He called me into the office and for a chat about something that had happened in training. There was an altercation or something, a bit of fisticuffs in training, and he just sort of called me in. And said, um, and he just sort of a word with, such, such, I can't even remember who it was, it was one of the younger players, it might have been Michael Brown, I'm not sure, but he said, I want to have a word with him and, and uh, see if you can get any sense out of him. Um, and then he, he sort of sat me down and said, well, we've had a good think about things and we decided to make you captain. And it like, just sort of came out like that and I was shocked, taken aback by it. But I was... Um, I was chuffed as well in a way. It was just something I never thought would happen because I thought there was other people like Kevin Orlock who could who could do a better job because Kev was sort of like the life and soul of the party at that time. Uh, and he, he, for me, would have been a, a better captain, I think. But he, he, Joe gave it to me and it, it was something that I... Um, I, I'm, I it's interesting, I've, I've heard that... I've heard that Horlocks was kind of the joker, the, the guy who kept everybody entertained and the practical, always playing practical jokes and that on everybody. So you, you say you think he would make a better captain than you. Why, why do you say that? Because just because he's a he, joker makes everybody laugh, doesn't he? No, he, 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 he was consistent. He was consistent, Kevin. He was, he was a, he was a, I know he messed about a lot and a lot of the lads will tell stories about him. I've got hundreds of stories about him, but he was a consistent performer for me. He, he, he he worked hard, he worked his socks off. Probably wasn't the most vocal, which people see you need to be vocal in the dressing room, whereas I tried to do it a different way, like leading by example during training where we were running, doing 60-second laps, and people were complaining, and I just got on with it. And, and so yeah. that's sort of how why, did, why Joe picked me, because I just got on with it, and he said, right, we're doing another one. Right, get on with it. People complained and moaned about it. Um, and I think that's why, that, that's what Joe and Willie saw in me. I think they saw that, that, 
I was the type of player who would wouldn't ask any questions, you'd just do what they asked. And I think that's why, why Listen, it happened. Let's fast forward to uh, a certain Wembley playoff final then against Gillingham. You may remember wow. it, Richard, I don't know. It might have been at least from your memory, who knows? <laughs> Some day, that wasn't it? It was, um, I'll just say, wow, that's. <laughs> Because <laughs> I watch it back, it's ridiculous. You watch it, it's just the whole thing, the whole season. To come down to that that last day and and to be in that position we were in, nobody would ever in a million years, I don't think, think tell you that that was going to happen. And to be involved in that day was something I'll never forget. It was just, it was just. I get goosebumps watching it back now. When I watch it, I get goosebumps, and it just takes me back to that day when. After the game, I was sat in the dressing room with the lads, and some lads were spraying champagne. I was just sat drained on the on the towel. I was I was drained. The lads had gone. Everything. It was just a draining experience. And to to have uh, can... sorry, no, go on, sorry. Nigel. No, no, I was going to say, and you were going to say. Obviously, it's it's difficult down the line here. There's a slight delay, so I'm sorry if I keep interrupting you. That's but fine. you said you were going on to say something else. Yeah, to have, have that season we had. I mean, we didn't have the best season. I remember walking out of Main Road and having 32,000 fans against Blackpool and Liam Gallagher and Noel Gallagher on the pitch berating the Blackpool fans. And everybody thought we were going to go out and just annihilate teams that season. And we didn't. And we got to Christmas and I think we played Wrexham um, Boxing Day away. And it was a soggy pitch. It was wet. I had the worst game ever. Kevin Orlock sat down next to me after the game. We won it 1-0. Jared Vekin scored. We had 3,000 away travelling fans. The day was just frightening. And I sat down and dressed him after. I was getting nutmegged. I was getting out-sprinted. The people were out-jumping me. I had the worst game ever. The ball went through my legs. I went to take a throw in. It slipped out of my hands and went onto the pitch. Referee shouted, play on. Um, and I sat down after and Kevin slapped me on the leg. He went, he went edgy. He said, that's the worst game I've ever seen anyone have <laughs> and I just sat there laughing we just sat there and laughed but we were from that day we had that we had that togetherness where we had we would run through try and run through a wall with each other and, and that's what got us through and then to go on a run after that I think it was 17 games I think we yeah. only got beat once or something like that 17 games unbeaten yeah. and drawing two or three um, which ended up in us being at, at Wembley against Gillingham. And everyone travelling down must have thought, oh, we're going to batter Gillingham. We'll, we'll be in about 3-0, 3-4-0. And to go 2-0 down on the day and be in that position of, we're going to be in this league again against Lincoln and Morecambe and Bury and these teams, that was just awful. And um, to, to come and pull ourselves out of that was just something, it was just surreal. It was just a surreal event for me absolutely I was one of those fans travelling down and uh, I, you'd be I, didn't, I didn't leave I stayed to the end and uh, very grateful I did and uh, I don't think Kevin Hall I was talking to Nicky Weaver last week on the show and as we both said I don't think that Kevin Hall necessarily gets much credit does he for his goal it's kind of almost ignored really in, into insignificance because of uh, pales into insignificance because of uh, Paul Dickoff uh, snatching a, a late equaliser. Can, can we talk about your penalty? Because I don't think you'd scored, had you? Um, and, uh, and Fissity. No, I you haven't. Had, no, can no, I just, put, yeah, can I just get on record, though, as well? 
that cool, <laughs> everyone please. goes on about Paul's goal when I actually scored the winning penalty. Absolutely. I was going to come on to that. So I think you're absolutely right. And it was a deflection anyway. And he won't have that, will he? Well, no, he won't have it. No, the, last game, the, the last game against Brighton when we won the league last year. And I said to him, great cross, a deflection. He, he wasn't happy when I said that. But it, you watch it from behind the goal, absolutely a deflection. He wouldn't have beaten his best man if it hadn't been, I reckon. He had a blinder that day. Anyway, your penalty. Did you, did you volunteer, Richard? Or did you? is that how it worked? Was it a case of who, who's up for this? And you said, I'll do it? Or were you given the job? Yeah, I mean, that, at that time, uh, Andy, Andy Morrison had got injured. He was out with an injury. So I was, when Andy wasn't captain, I would be captain. And uh, we we stayed behind on to the, on the pit after the two Wigan games. We stayed behind on the pitch and main road practicing penalties. After the second leg, we would train on the pitch that week, so we didn't we didn't get any distractions at Park Lane because used to get fans shouting obscenities through the the, the fence to us at Park Lane, and we just sort of train at, the, at main road just to have a bit of normality and a bit of just calm, really. And we'd, after every training session, we'd go down and practice penalties and Stan Gibson would be shouting and swearing at us telling us to get off the pitch, but in <laughs> different words to that. And um, I remember after that second leg against Wigan, one training session with me, Paul Dickoff, Kevin Orlock, who was the regular penalty taker, Gareth Taylor, I think it was, and a few others, we said we're going to practice penalties. So we all said, right, we'll all have to take 10 or 20 penalties. And I think during the time I practiced, I'd only probably Nicky Weaver had saved one penalty out of, I think I took 20 altogether, something like that. And um, I was confident, because me and Dicky used to say like, about opening your body up to put it in the, in the opposite corner and sending the keeper the wrong way. And that's what we practiced in training. I practiced it and practiced it. And then when it came time for Joe and Willie to talk about who was going to take penalties, if it did go to penalties, I just said, yeah, I'd be willing to take one. And I did. I put my hand up and said I would. I would be willing to take one along with Paul, because obviously the manager and Willie had watched an ace of half and had watched the penalties being practiced. And George said, "You know, if, if it came to it, would you be confident and willing to take one?" And I just said, "Yes, I would." And that's how it sort of came about. But I've had, I'd, I'd, I'd say hundreds of people come up to me, but <laughs> quite a lot saying when you walk, when you ran up to take that penalty, I couldn't watch. <laughs> Uh, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a joke on, on match days certain times, but um, I actually never thought we'd, it'd get to bounce. I thought it'd probably be done in normal time or maybe extra time, but for it to go the way it did and that, well, it seems like extra time, extra time became a bit of a extra time became a yeah. non-event, didn't it? It's just it's almost like went went past with with, with no real incident. I, I was interested in your reaction as well. I'm sure you've been asked about this as well, Richard. But, you know, the kind of the grabbing of the shirt and and the kissing of the badge. I mean, that that did, how did you feel? Was that just just raw emotion? Did you think we've got it here? What, what was going through your mind when you did that? I talked to talked to Nicky Weaver, of course, about his reaction last week, which. Slightly different uh, when he saved that final penalty, but but your 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 reaction to the penalty you scored, what was going on in your in your mind when you did that? I think mine was a, a lot of relief, but a lot of, not a dig, but a little a little got the fans that had been giving me a bit of stick and um, getting on my back a little bit. But it was more about this is massive. This is the, when you when you put the ball down the spot and you looked at all the fans. To me, in my mind, I, I was thinking this is absolutely huge. I cannot miss this penalty, no matter what. Mm. And in my head, while I'm 
prepare myself to set the penalty. I'm in my mind. I'm saying, I'm telling myself, I can't miss it. I can't miss it. Don't change your mind. Don't change your mind. And I remember putting the ball down and I stepped back to take the penalty. And my legs are completely gone. I couldn't feel my legs. My legs were like just gone jelly. And I had to take a deep breath and sort of compose myself. And luckily, it went in the top corner. In your book, uh, Once a Blue, Always a Blue, you do you do refer to the fans' reaction to you. Um, and you did come in for quite a bit of stick from a large proportion of City fans. What, what, what are your thoughts and feelings about that, Richard, at the time and now looking back on it? At the time, it was it was disappointing, but football is one of those games. It's a fickle sport where everyone's going to have an opinion. You can't be the everyone has an opinion about Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. You can't be the best at what you do. You can't be the best. Cristiano Ronaldo's got flaws. People have don't do everything perfectly all the time, and I was dis- disappointed. But I put it down to me being more known to the fans than some of the other players that we'd, we'd recently bought into the team. And it it did it did push me on to be more determined to, to prove people wrong. And it, it sort of culminated in that in that season um, when I was taken off by, by Joe Royal at that time, where I sat down in the dressing room and I was sort of beat. I was done in. I'd, I'd had enough. I'd, I'd, I couldn't do it anymore. And that was sort of what led towards the end of my, of my career at Manchester City. And, and and before you do that, I mean, obviously the, the game against Blackburn a season later, um, and that two sort of promotion, two seasons on the trot. What, what what were your reflections and thoughts about that particular game? The Blackburn game for me gave me just as much excitement as the as the Wembley game. Because it was, we had to win. We had to, we had to win the game to go up. So it was all on the line again, and it was it was about being strong-minded and doing your job, remembering little things that you've done in training and what people have told you, and just doing your job basically. And that's how I went into that game. I got captain the side that that day. It was a boiling up day. Blackburn had not watered the pitch. The pitch was horrible, bumpy, dry. I slid I slid into a tackle and I think it was the first half and ripped all the skin off the side of my hip and it didn't heal for about three weeks afterwards yeah. um, it was just a, a, an energetic sort of day you'd see City fans everywhere you went we were warming up you could hear people shouting out the crowd I'm thinking they're Blackburn fans they, they don't know who I am and people shouting edgy out the crowd and stuff like that but you could just you, you could feel the presence <laughs> of the fans at, 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 in the ground that day and it was like a carnival atmosphere it was boiling out it was it was just everything came together on that on that one day um, and we went 1-0 down after about I think it was about 10 minutes quite early which was everyone just thought oh my god this is it could have been 4-5 I think couldn't it as well from my memory yeah the, I think it could the post and the bar about well. four times yeah loads of chances yeah yeah <laughs> And it was. I mean, so we came, we came through in the end. Uh, 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 in terms of the, kind of the, your, your end of your career and, and how that came about, what were your, what were your feelings considering it was it was a fifteen years for, for, from a twelve year old 
Uh, here you were at 27. And, and just talk us through how it came about and your feelings and the conversations you had when it was time to leave City and, and, and your your thoughts and reflections about that, Richard. Um, it was For me, it was it was disappointing because I was never one of the, like I said, I was never one of those players that banged on the manager's door demanding new contracts and money and this, that and the other. I was just, I got on with it and the only, uh, I wouldn't even say it as an argument, I'd say it was a discussion. The only discussion I had was with Kevin Keegan when he became manager and he came in with Arthur Cox and Derek Fizakli and he said at that time that everybody who didn't play the previous season starts with a fresh, a fresh slate which was quite a few of us who didn't play the previous season. And um, everyone just thought, all right, now's our chance to prove ourselves to the new manager. And things were going really well. And I'd I'd started, I think I'd played the first five games of the season. And we went to Sheffield Wednesday and I ruptured my medial ligament in my knee. And I was out for about two months with it and didn't get back into the team. And then... um, my contract was running out towards the end of that season. And I think it came to boxing, played West Brom at home on Boxing Day. And um, I was in the boot room sorting my boots out and Bernard Alford came in, who's now not with us, rest in peace, Bernard, um, passed me a letter, said to me, put this in your pocket and don't open it till after the game. But me being me, curious, I opened it and it was um, a contract offer from the club saying um, the club are willing to offer you a one-year contract. And uh, at 27, I just thought it, it was a little bit odd that they were only going to offer me a one-year deal. So when the conversation came with me and Kevin Keegan, I, he called me into his office and he said, um, we're not going to deal with your, with your agent at the time. It, it was... Um, Mike Sheeran's cousin and um, we're not going to deal with him we don't want to deal with him so we're now from your one year contract if you don't sign it you're not getting a new contract um, I just said I was looking he said what would you what were you, What are your thoughts and I said I'd be looking at, I'm tw- 27 I thought I would be in my, my peak of my career at 27 I said I was looking at a bit longer two maybe three years and he said, no, the club aren't doing longer than one-year contracts now because uh, of the uncertainty and things like that. And if I'd have got another year, I would have. it would have been a tenth year as a professional. It would have been a testimonial year. And he, he, said, he then said to me, and you're also not going to get a testimonial. We don't do them anymore either. So that was how it was left. Um, I walked out of the office. I got halfway down the corridor and Derek Fazakli came running after me and said, uh, Edgy, just one minute. Um, the, the manager just told me to tell you that you're training with the U team from now on. Now, there'd not been any cross words. There'd not been any shouting or screaming at each other across the desk. It was just a conversation. I'm not going to sign the contract. Right, fair enough. You're not going to get another longer than a year. So you're going to go and train with the kids. But he didn't tell me that to my face in the office. He, he sent his assistant coach running after me to tell me I was training with the U team from now on. And I think he only had about four months left in the contract to go. So I went out, I went and trained with the youth team with Asa Hartford um, for, the, for the last four months I was at the club, which for me was dis- was very disappointing. I was really disappointed because a lot of the people who um, had been at the club a long time, like myself, sort of didn't bother with me, didn't 
you know, it was like I was I was an outcast. I was cast out with the youth team, and I wasn't going to be part of the first team anymore. And I found that really difficult, really difficult. And I was I was I was sort of happy to get out at the end of it all. Um, training with the youth team every day it was just demoralising, and it was just it was for me it was the wrong thing to do. And I think they dealt with it the wrong way. Well, it sounds like they did. That's after you know a, a former captain and somebody who'd had you know 15 years with the club. That is a very disappointing end. We we sadly don't have time to talk about you know QPR and Bradford and and, and even Macclesfield Town with with your old mate Ian Brightwell. We we don't have time for that. But a few other bits I just want to touch before before we finish, Richard, if we can. Uh, I'm interested to know um, what you do with kind of your medals and your shirts I, I had interesting answers you know we have some of the former city players have got them in a i think it was joe corrigan so he's just got them in a box in the loft and there's others like nicky weaver who's got like a trophy cabinet you know in his in his games room and his bar at home where are you with you must have you know lots of memory billy a man of the match awards and captain's armbands and and and, and trophies and medals and stuff where, as a matter of interest old shirts where do you keep yours richard Mine's scattered all over the place. I've got some. My brother's got my Wembley shirt. Um, my medals and the England caps are in, the, in a, a drawer in my living room. Um, <laughs> a lot of my shirts are in, in bags, in lofts and stuff like that. Some are in my loft and some are in my mum's loft um, from over the years. Because my mum and dad used to click. If I got a spare shirt, they'd keep the shirts and they'd, they'd keep them so that I didn't... I was I was the sort of person who throw stuff out, so I didn't throw it out. But just got sort of scattered all over the place, really. Amazing. Uh, the best attacker you played against, in, in, whether that's as a central defender or, or as a fullback, uh, can you think of uh, one or two names that you think? Yeah, he was a, he was a good player. He always gave me trouble. Probably there's probably two that stand out: Robbie Fowler and Ian Wright. Mm. They were the men too. And what about today's game? Today's game as well. I, I'm interested to get your views on that. Uh, sort of um, in terms of you know the, the way Pep plays football. You know the, these just this amazing football possession, pass, pass, pass. Full full backs who are really you know wing backs and so on, and, and, and they do a bit of defending, but they spend most of the time in in the opponent's half and so on. You, you, your thoughts? Could, could you have adapted to that sort of play? Do you think it would have that suited you with your pace and so on? You probably could have done, couldn't you? Yeah, I think uh, when, I, when I watch the games now, now, I think to myself, it would have suited me better. I think I played in the, in the wrong era because it would have suited me better to play in this era because there's not that much tackling going on at the minute. And it's more about possession of the ball and you get possession, we have possession. And there's not a lot of tackling, whereas I've, I've got scars on my legs from tackling, sliding into people with, with six studs and I've got six stud marks down my, inside of my calf. Or, you know, I've had... I've had nine operations on one of my knees and there's not a lot of that physical um, where you get physical knocks and dead legs and things like that where you, you come into contact with other people. So it would have probably suited me down to the ground playing nowadays, especially with the, the way things are with the dietitians and the training and the, the, the big leap forward in the science side of it. Um, a lot of our players who, and when I played, used to go on after the train, go out and drink all night and or go to McDonald's. That was the nutrition they got. So it probably would have suited me to be playing now, yeah. Uh, 
and, and the pitches are slightly better than that by Blackburn pitch as well. There's a bit more grass on them as well, isn't there? I think they watered them about 17 times during the game as well, don't they? And all slightly different to those days. Now, there's one other thing I want to just mention as well. Um, I was talking to Jim Whitley a few weeks ago, and he t- we were talking about how he's the, probably the, th- the third best Whitley because his brother was better than him and he's got a son who's better than him. And, and I believe you've got a, a budding footballer in your family as well who's kind of a, a future England star. Tell us about her. Yeah, Cassie's um, 13, she plays for a team in Macclesfield. Um, she's all left foot, which is bizarre to watch. She's a, she's a dribbler. She dribbles in and out of the ball. She scores goals from corners. Um, but she doesn't celebrate them. I said, why don't why you celebrate them? She said, I was embarrassed. I said, don't be embarrassed about scoring a goal from a corner. Um, but she, she she's, she's very good. She enjoys the um, the skill side of it and the running. And um, she's she's messaged me and shows me videos of her knocking free kicks into the top corner and things like that. And um, she does seventy eight keepy uppers with the ball and things like that. I'm practicing, and she's very good. She's um, she enjoys it. Brilliant. So we'll see we'll see what happens with her. Look forward to seeing her her progress. Yeah. Uh, listen, our, our time is pretty much up here. Uh, so really great having you on the show, Richard. We always end, uh, I know you've listened to some of the other podcasts, so you'll be familiar with this. We we have kind of a, a very quick, fast round. You can't think about it too much. Whatever comes into your head, an either-or answer I'm going to give you. Are you ready for the quick try round, my friend? Yeah, go on, Nigel. <clears throat> yeah, right. Okay, here we go. Marmite, love it or hate it? Hate it. Sky blue or red and black stripes? Sky blue. Bell or De Bruyne? Kevin De Bruyne. Christmas or your birthday? Neither. (laughs) Ski slopes or beach? Beach. Pint of beer or glass of wine? Wine. Main road or the Etihad Stadium? Main road. Beating Gillingham or beating Blackburn? Gillingham. The Aguero goal or Dickoff's goal? Oh, dick off. <laughs> well done. Good work. Listen, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to have City legend, City star, former skipper, 15 years at the club. Massive thanks to our good friend Richard Hedgehill. This is Nigel Rothband saying thanks for listening and we'll talk to you all very soon. Wasn't that a great podcast? Now, if you've got 90 seconds spare in your day, Come and listen to ours. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available wherever you got this podcast. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit Playback Media. Sports Social Podcast Network.